0: Uh, Hi, my name is Sean O'Malley with Public Affairs at the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. Uh, Welcome back to the official CAMH podcast. Today, uh, we are going to be talking about the uh, annual uh, Rendezvous uh, with Madness uh, festival um, that will be running from October 10th uh, until October 21st. Uh, This is the 26th year uh, of the festival. Uh, It's long been associated with with, uh, Workman Arts here. Uh, uh, I believe it started as a film festival, but now it has gone beyond uh, film uh, into various uh, other art forms. Uh, And I'm happy to be uh, joined today uh, by two people. Uh, First uh, sitting to my left is the uh, Artistic uh, Director for Workman Arts, uh, Kelly Strawn, did I get your title correct?
1: Well, Executive Artistic Director, but I'm also fine with Artistic Director.
0: (laughs) Uh, And I'm also uh, pleased to be joined uh, with Catherine McClellan. Uh, She is a singer-songwriter from Prince Edward Island, Um, so uh, was her father, uh, and that is uh, the subject uh, of a documentary film um, about um, the two of them, uh, and that uh, film is actually debuting uh, on uh, opening night on October 10th. Uh, So thank you for joining us, Catherine. Glad to be here. So Kelly, I'd just like to start with you, Um, this festival has long, has it had an association with Workman Arts from its inception?
1: It has, yeah. So um, Workman Arts started 30 years ago and it was started by a psychiatric nurse named Lisa Brown, um, who in the units at CAMH noticed that, you know, the clients were just looking for something to do and so she thought well let's start a theater troupe. And then from there, the organization grew, and so in um, five years in, they decided to start the Rendezvous with Madness Film Festival, and it was the first film festival in the world, if you can believe it. So, I mean, it was radical when they were doing that 25 years ago. It was absolutely radical. And, And the name has been with us for 26 years. I think at the time, using the term madness was absolutely radical. Yeah.
0: Well, uh, certainly, uh, you know, we all have our own memories about how, um, I'll put it in quote marks or what have you, madness is portrayed uh, in film. Uh, You know, most people reference One Flew Up the Cuckoo's Nest. Uh, But I, uh, uh, my daughter and I happen to have uh, a real thing for the Terminator franchise, and uh, it always reminds me in, in the Terminator 2. Uh, There's a long sequence uh, at a psychiatric hospital there um, Mm -hmm. where the mother of the future John Connor um, has been uh, locked up in a psychiatric institution and uh, it always I won't say it makes us laugh, but we find it interesting when uh, she says, "Really, is that what it's like where you worked at?" Because uh, they have all the the same, you know, hoary tropes that you hear about. You know, with people literally climbing the walls and yep. screaming and attacking anyone they could possibly find, and uh, that was. And of course, you had the evil, you know, doctor who was controlling people and the evil night intern and. Uh, all of these classic portrayals yeah. of, uh, of psychiatric institutions in the movies. So, uh, I hope over the course of the festival that it has played a role over the years in giving people perhaps a, a more nuanced and uh, accurate portrayal of uh, what it's like being uh, at a place like CAMH.
1: Well, yeah, and I think I mean when you're talking about you know uh, that you know that old stereotype that last year. Um, There was an interesting short series that looked at um, horror films and the way that mental health is portrayed in horror films. and It was so interesting to see all of the old clips, and you think, oh my goodness, thank goodness we've come a long way.
0: (laughs) Is it almost in a way like, you know, people always say that sci-fi movies are never really about the period they're portraying they're actually more about the present I mean not to go too big picture but but do you think you know sometimes the way mental illness has been portrayed in films over the years says more about that culture at that time um than mental illness itself
1: yeah yeah absolutely and I think I mean you you can sort of broaden that to you know um you know where society is at in general but yeah and and certainly now i think what we're seeing way more of Uh, are documentary films Mm -hmm. um and so you know that's also why we're opening up the festival at the hot docks cinema because they're known for documentaries and obviously our opening film is a documentary but so many of the submissions are documentaries and really looking at people's lives and and looking at their journeys and i mean and the stories are so varied in terms of their background and you know where they are in their lives so yeah
0: now we're going to get into today momentarily um this particular documentary that you're here for, uh, Catherine, uh, The Song and the Sorrow. Uh, But before we get to that, um, Kelly, can you give me, you know, some of the, I mean, there's so much to go over, but just some of of the highlights of what we'll be seeing over the next 11 days, um, you know, film and otherwise?
1: Um, So as you mentioned, it's the first year we're going multidisciplinary. Um, And that, I mean for a few reasons. One is that, you know, Workman Arts is a multidisciplinary organization and we have uh, over 350 artists that are at Workman and so it gives them a chance, uh, and and not that all of the films and all of the theatre productions and visual art exhibitions are all members, but it certainly gave our members more of a chance to be involved in the festival. Um, but, uh, so tonight you're going to see Song and the Sorrow and Catherine, I'll let Catherine speak more about that. Uh, and then, uh, over the 12 days, there are 17 film, uh, selections. And so, uh, we are at nine different venues. So, uh, some of them are at AGO, uh, some of them are at the Workman Arts Theater. Um, we have six site-specific theatre productions and so that's taking place as well all throughout um, the west part of Toronto. There's actually a show happening at CAMH uh, in what we're calling the Atrium Space in the Community Centre. So that one's quite interesting because uh, Brad Nessick, he was the artist-in-residence with the Education Department and so he had access to be in... um, if they're still calling it group therapy, I have no idea about the group therapy It's a the group, they do therapy. It, well, it's, them, yeah, what, whatever, yeah, you can tell. I come from the arts world. So. Um, uh, so he had, he was here for a few months and then wrote this play called Storm Shelter that was sort of loosely based on his experience here as well as his own personal journey with mental health. Um, and so uh, he really wanted to do it uh, actually, he wanted to do it in a client room at CAMH. I said, "Well, I'm pretty sure that's not going to happen." But let's look for an alternate space. And so he's doing it in the atrium space in the community center. So, um, and a few of his performances are at six o'clock. We thought, you know, CAMH staff and clients would be interested in seeing it. So, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, and I should mention, we also have um, our "Bursting Bubbles" visual art exhibition. So that opens tomorrow at the TMac space, which is the new Toronto Media Arts Center space really close to the H Queen Street site it's on Lisgar Street and so that features eight artists it's quite um, it's more than art on walls it's really interactive media arts there's one that is actually more like performance art that you can take part in so yeah there's a lot happening at TMAC as well.
0: Oh it's exciting. Mm -hmm. Now when you say you have 350 members at Workman Arts um, Would they all have lived experience in one form or another with mental illness or addiction?
1: Yes. So to become a member, the... First, they have to have an artistic practice because um, we're a professional arts organization and so they really have to meet us with some history of an art practice and uh, and then they have to identify as having lived experience. We don't ask for a diagnosis, we don't ask for a referral, we don't ask for proof other than them telling us they have lived experience. Um, And from there, we show them our facilities and and, what we have on offer and what we can do for them because we have free classes that run every day. we have Rendezvous with Madness, um, we have a large exhibition that happens in March, and so if uh, the potential member looks at, you know, everything we have and thinks, yep, this is the space for me, then they're in, that's it.
0: <laughs> now, I remember you telling me in an earlier conversation uh, that one of the most uh, popular things that uh, members or even clients like to do in relation to workman arts uh, is improv, Uh, Yeah,
1: our mad prov troupe, yeah. Yeah, (laughs) why
0: is improv so popular among your members and, and your clientele?
1: Well, I think, I mean, first of all, we have a great teacher and she's been with us. Um, Kate has been with us for, Kate Ashby has been with us for oh over a decade. So she is just such a popular teacher. Um, but also, you know, the if anyone's ever um, done an improv class, the rules of improv are the rules for life, you know, mm-hmm. where instead of saying no, you say yes and. You have to listen to your partner. Um, you know, your scenes will not go as planned in your head they are unpredictable by nature and you just let it go they call it leaving it in the room you just leave it in the room or leave it on stage and you move on and you don't you know obsess and think about it so there's all kinds of rules that kind of just get you out of your head and just get you really paying attention to your scene partner to what's happening around you and so i think it can be a very freeing hour i mean for anyone really you know i encourage everyone to take an improv class okay
0: i've I've got to get to that oh they're fabulous uh so so catherine again Thank you so much for coming here. Uh, I mean, you must have mixed feelings about, you know, being proud to see this film come to life and seeing it debut at the festival. Um, But the subject matter um, is 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 another matter. Um, Now, my uh, understanding, by the way, I saw you um, uh, being uh, referred to as a combination of a blend of Hank Williams and Emmylou Harris.
2: I'll take it. Sounds I was going to say, yeah. uh,
0: that sounds pretty good to me. Uh, <laughs> uh, so, I mean, Catherine is is a established uh, singer-songwriter, award-winning singer-songwriter herself. Uh, but this film is about the relationship with you um, and your father, uh, Gene McClellan, um, who, um, for people who are not old enough to know, uh, he was a very uh, prolific uh, singer and songwriter as well. Uh, he wrote for many people. Uh, Anne Murray, who is uh, featured in the film, um, her the song that she says launched her career, Sonberg, was written by uh, your by father. Uh, also, Elvis Presley, Bing Crosby, and Joan Baez. Is that all true?
2: Yeah, it's kind of... Uh Amazing! Like, this guy living in PEI had all the success in the world um, that you could ever imagine. Um, You know, just a little guy from PEI. It (laughs) was a pretty uh, interesting time for him. And ultimately, it was actually really challenging for him. He he struggled with success a lot. But, uh, you know, when I was growing up, I never knew any of that stuff. I didn't know that, yeah, Elvis recorded his songs. That was so cool. (laughs) Now, how did
0: this... Uh, project come about? Uh, the the director, is, was she a friend of yours? Did you know her already?
2: Yeah, um, Mila Fiore Clarks, or Mila, is uh, a friend from PEI. She's a film director. She's, she and I have worked uh, a fair amount in the past, mostly with music videos doing small projects, and um, she approached me about doing um, basically a film that would kind of look at the relationship of a film father and child you know the father who had all the success and the child who's kind of following in the footsteps and um, she could relate to that from her own experience of having you know a large father uh, in the world and uh, when she brought that to me I thought yeah that you know it'd be interesting to delve into my relationship with my dad but it would be more fulfilling for me if we could kind of look at the mental health aspect of it and try to figure some of that out and bring that to the light so that was how it started.
0: Well, uh, it's, I mean, as it coincidentally, I, um, I, I have s- um, some similarities with you in that I, uh, before I came to CAMH, I had a career as a journalist and a writer, and um, I grew up uh, with a father who was uh, quite a well known writer himself. So I had that similarity in ending up in the same career path as he was and always being referred to as the son of. Um, So our paths are similar that way, but um, not uh, in the way um, your life unfolded. Um, As the film documents, uh, your father died by suicide when you were 14 years old. Um, And my understanding is that you wanted this documentary to be something that really did deal with that head-on and your relationship uh after the fact is is that correct
2: Yeah because i think anybody who's been touched by suicide in in uh in their relationships knows that it you know the beginning part of grief is is one thing but then it just continues on for so so long and uh and i guess there were you know i had dealt with it pretty well in my life but the film helped me certainly dive deeper into some places that i hadn't before um, discussions with my family, discussions with people that my dad knew and, and had relationships with, and um, yeah, it was very, uh, it, was, it challenged me in lots of ways, but it also helped me um, in the healing process, you know, it just continues going on forever, I don't think that ever ends.
0: Now, in the 14 years that, that you had with your father, um, was, was he on the road a lot? How, how often was he uh, around uh, in those days?
2: He'd go for, you know, two or four or six weeks, sometimes away, um, but when he was home, he was just home, and I feel like that kind of was a really good trade-off. You know, when he wasn't around, he really wasn't around, <laughs> and it was, you know, there was no FaceTime or um, cell phones back then, so it was, uh, you know, he'd give us a call every once in a while, but mostly he just disappeared, And but when he was home, he was with us all the time, and he didn't have a day job that he had to go to, so it was... Uh, was pretty lovely. And it's, you know, I kind of took that into my brain when I started to- touring with a, a little infant and the feeling of leaving her, you know, back at home with family was pretty hard. But then we also had a really special relationship when I was just home. So yeah, I mean, it's interesting having a parent who doesn't have a nine to five job, I guess. Well,
0: how, how, how much did you know um, about what he was going through, the depth of his pain while he was
2: alive? No, I knew nothing. You know, I really didn't know anything. I didn't even know why he was um, in the hospital at the end of his life. You know, there was something up, but we didn't talk about it. Nobody talked about it. And, um, you know, I think people have been working on reducing stigma for years now, but at that point it was was still so entrenched, you know, Mm -hmm. just don't talk about it. And nobody understood it. Um, which made them more afraid to talk about it. So, um, and when my dad died, nobody talked about that either. It was a pretty, um, yeah, it was a pretty isolating way to grieve because there was no, I didn't know what had happened. You know, it was very. just feel like
0: a family secret. It, it did in it a way. The way it was dealt with after his death.
2: Yeah, and the way that nobody approached us or talked to us about it, even you know taken to a counselor after my dad died and the counselor gave me a checklist of things like, How do you feel? Like are you you know, and I checked what was the right answer I thought for every little box and after he's like, She's good <laughs> you know, so there was no I didn't process it with a therapist, there was none of that. It was just kind of was something we all dealt with very quietly and separately.
0: Now did you and I don't know if you came to find this in the course of doing this film or or over the years, but how much of a sense did you have that that your mother or, uh, or the other artists that he worked with, um, how much did they know about yeah. what he
2: was dealing with? I think that was my big question. You know, that was what I wanted to find out, and I was greatly disappointed to find out they didn't know anything about it. <laughs> I was like, how is this possible that, you know, you could have known him for most of your life and, you know... I guess they knew he was sensitive, you know, that was the word they used, but Mm -hmm. it didn't, you know, it never made them think he's depressed or, you know, he's struggling with his mental health. My mom knew more than anybody, but she tried to protect us from it, so that was the reason she gave for not talking about it at the time.
0: Was was it just seen as just, in in its own way, part of the package for an artist, that that's just the way artists act uh, and are, and that's What helps them create the art if you want to make yourself feel better about it?
2: Yeah, there's definitely that stereotype. But I think I I speak to a bit in the film, you know, it's like not all artists are mentally ill and not all mentally ill people are artists, you know. And and, and ultimately, being mentally ill, that's just one piece of somebody's life. It's not the whole thing, but um, as you well know, but... um, I, th- I think that stereotype is really detrimental to artists' health because they think it's okay to not deal with their mental health. and uh, and people kind of encourage them. They encourage them to drink more. they encourage them to stay up late and to not take care of themselves and um, because it's fun or you know whatever. and and ultimately it's it's a pretty destructive way to live if you don't learn how to you know take care of yourself.
0: Yeah, I guess the lifestyle is not always conducive to to good self-care, you know, from what you eat to, you know, what else you take, you know, when you're on the road and you're doing all those things.
2: And financial insecurity, too, is a big Mm -hmm. one.
0: Uh, Now, yourself, I mean, when did, when do you feel your journey began? Like, when you look back, when do you think you first realized that, uh, well, when do you think you first realized that you had your own issues and how far back do you think they went? Looking back,
2: yeah, who knows when it really started? But it was, you know, in my uh, probably early twenties where I first started realizing that I had something that I had to deal with, um, because it I I started worrying that my depression was becoming, you know, on the scale of of what my dad's might have been, and I saw the future coming, and I didn't want to end up like him, basically, and so I. Yeah, I started reading as much as I could and finding out anything I could about mental health and and uh, really examining myself and my moods, and, and I continue that to this day.
0: <laughs> so then there was a, a gap of most of your teenage years between the, the grieving over the death of your father mm-hmm. and then, you know, starting to deal with your own issues um, as well. Um, now, at what point I mean, were you... Did you always aspire to be a, a singer-songwriter yourself, um, or you know how? When did that path emerge, or was it just chosen for you, essentially? Yeah, like,
2: it certainly wasn't chosen. I think my mom would have loved if I had, you know, done something more practical. <laughs> I was told but the yeah. same thing. Well, yeah. Whatever you do, don't be a writer. Yeah, you know, that's what I tell my daughter. Don't do it. Um, I, you know, uh, writing for me began as a process of this kind of self-examination and dealing with my grief, and because I had all these emotions and nowhere to put them, no one to talk to about them. And, you know, just being a teenage girl, you know, there's lots to deal with all on its own. So um, after my dad died, I kind of tucked myself into my room with my guitar and learned how to play it and learned how to write songs. So um, you weren't
0: really particularly musical before then?
2: Oh, I was. You know, there, we all took piano lessons and we loved to sing around the house, but yeah, I, I wasn't really devoted to my instrument until that point because I needed it as a tool. Um, and that, you know, it really did help me. Using art as a as a tool for processing grief was, was amazing. Um, but my mom always wondered, when are you going to write a happy song? <laughs> it took me a little while.
0: <laughs> now, um, what did you... Uh, I, I haven't had a chance to f- see the film myself. Um, what did you uh, end up learning um about your father that that you didn't really know over the course of this process
2: i guess i i knew that he was human but it was nice to kind of see you know to dig deeper into who he was and um you know we i think everybody who gets to know their parents as uh, you know as adult to adult you just learn that they are just people instead of, you know, this authority figure who is, you know, somewhat godlike, <laughs> And I never got to have that relationship with my dad, but I guess in a way I am having it. You know, I'm asking lots of people about who he was and playing his music. I find that's where he is. And, um, I forget what the actual question was. I just started rambling, but...
0: <laughs> oh, the question was, uh, you know, how, what did you come to know oh, yeah. about him that, that you didn't know through, um, were his friends.
2: Yeah, I guess, yeah, I just, I don't know if I learned too much new about him, actually. I mostly learned things about myself, which sounds very uh, not not great, but (laughs) uh, I learned that I already knew a lot about him, and people kept repeating the same things about how great and generous and talented and sensitive and you know, perfect he was, and really what I wanted to hear was, you know, he had bad days, and he was human, and um, nobody had those stories, and it was a great disappointment. I started feeling like I had kind of lost him in the process. I felt like he was further and further away from me as we got towards the end of the film, um, and then there was a certain point where, you know, I I kind of started a new grieving process for who I thought he was, Um and then, as you know in the in the film, it kind of shows me uh working on this stage show about my dad's life and his music, and it was doing that that I realized you know his spirit is still in the songs like that's where his personality, his sense of humor, you know all the wisdom he could give me are all in his songs, and so that was a really a big transformative moment for me, realizing that he was still quite alive and well in that in there
0: was he a funny guy
2: he was a he was a very funny guy he loved uh he loved improv. He loved that whole, uh, you know, Second City kind of. We watched that a lot. And um, and he, yeah, he had a great sense of humor. Um, he had lots of sides to him.
0: Now, you went through this period where it wasn't, you said it wasn't talked about, um, it wasn't mentioned. Uh, you talked about going through a long period where you couldn't listen to his music um, at all. Um, now, I gather... It's, I don't know how recently it was, um, but at what point were you able to listen to his music uh, again? Because I understand you have actually were able to, to write uh, a tribute album uh, of his songs, is that correct?
2: Yeah, yeah. I recorded an album of his music, uh, I guess, a year ago. And um, it was all kind of tied into this show that I was doing in PEI over the last two summers. Um, and that, you know... I, I, I started playing his songs probably about ten years ago. Um and he's been gone twenty some, twenty four years or something. So it, it took me a while to get to the place where I could play his songs and I only did it because people asked me to. You know, it wasn't like I was really needed to learn his songs. But the more I learned the songs, the more um I realized I had a lot to learn from him as a as a teacher, as a songwriter to a songwriter. Um, so that's been it's been really amazing learning these songs, and uh, even "Snowbird," which uh, you know, lots of people got sick of in the '70s. <laughs> uh, I never really get sick of it. It's it's a gr- really well written song, and it's uh, it's a beautiful one to play.
0: Now, is it is part of the core purpose of wanting to do this project? Um, th- I mean, there's your own journey that you went on with this project. Which just has its own merits on its own, but was, was there also with either you or the director um, a sense of you know the fact that he never talked about it in his lifetime, um, was wanting to deal with that part of the motivation as well in terms of the conversations that we have about mental health?
2: Yeah, and it, it's, uh, that was definitely part of my thinking when I wanted to you know look directly at mental health in this film. Um, And it so far has been really great for that. You know, I'm having so many conversations about mental illness and and mental health and um, particularly about stigma because um, I think as many of us know, that's the thing that keeps people from getting help is this sense of shame and and silence around mental illness. And uh, if, you you know, if by doing this film we can help one person, I think we've done our job. And it's helping me, you know, It's helping me just have more conversations about it, which as a musician, I feel, you know, people think I'm crazy already for doing that, (laughs) for being a musician, which they might be right. But uh, um, being on a stage kind of gives you a voice that a lot of people don't have. And um, since I'm not going to get, you know, shamed for, you know, having depression or anxiety or anything like that, because I live the life of a musician, they think that's normal. Um, so I get this uh, chance to talk about it in a way that most people can't and um, I know people are afraid to talk about their mental illness although it's, it is you know, not as, as um, strong but still people are afraid of being shamed by their co-workers or losing their jobs or just being kind of, um, they don't want to be outed you know? so mm-hmm. um, yeah, it gives me a chance to do that and, and this film gives us even m- more people to reach
0: now, Kelly, this now this particular project, um, may, the, the very subject matter and the way it was done is sort of, you know, raises the idea of it, at the core of it, there being a therapeutic process to the journey of doing this film. But among your members at Workman Arts, um, I mean, I know it seems like a cliche that you know, art can be therapeutic, but... Mm-hmm. Is that cliche kind of more true among a lot of the people that you deal with or how would you describe the relationship between your members uh, and their art and the illnesses that they they deal with?
1: So with our organization we don't do art therapy um, Mm -hmm. and uh, the staff there we all come from various parts of the art world I I know the theatre world and I've worked in theatres and You know, we have our visual arts manager. So all of us come with art practices. Um, And so that becomes the thing um, that we talk about with the members when they come in because we're not clinicians. We can't really talk about diagnosis, nor we're just not equipped for it. That the conversations are about what are they creating and, you know, how are we going to get their work to the next level? And so I think in that, in a way that whatever label they have on themselves, when they walk through the door, they're an artist and we're talking about their art, that I imagine there's a bit of relief there or that they get to get outside themselves and just practice their art in a space that's understanding that sometimes you have bad days or that sometimes you can't make it to class on time, and that's okay. Um, and so, you know, I think in terms of, you know, workmen arts, that's what we offer up. In terms of the connection, in terms of artist and mental illness, um, I, I don't I don't really know that that's true, because mm-hmm. I can't imagine when you're in the throes of, you know, a terrible depression or, um, you know or, or suffering from terrible anxiety that you're at your most creative mm-hmm. and certainly when we see people walk through the door they're they're at a, a relatively stable place with their mental health and it's always when we don't see them for a while that we think oh my goodness have you seen so and so I hope you know I hope they're okay and we sort of try and ask around and just see what's going on because that, that's actually when we won't see them um, and when they're feeling better we see them again so and that cliche then,
0: about the tortured genius mm-hmm. you're saying it's almost impossible to create that kind of art when you really are in the depths of what you're going through.
1: Yeah, that's certainly not when we're seeing people, you mm-hmm. know, that's when they're missing class, that's when they can't, you know, come in and do their performance or what have you. And so, you know, in my short time at Workman, I, I don't feel that's true, <laughs> you know, I think, um, I think if anything, it would hinder being creative. I know certainly for myself, you know, I'm a theater director. I think it would be very hard to direct a show if I wasn't, you know, feeling at my best or somewhere close to my best.
0: And and just because all of the artists have some kind of lived lived experience does not necessarily mean at all that that's the subject matter that they are expressing in their art. It is, in the case of this film but not necessarily so with your artists, right?
1: No, and sometimes they're in a place where certainly art can help you understand your own personal story and help you understand your past, and art can be a tool. And so, you know, certainly we'll see, you know, visual art that's on that topic or films, but not all. Yeah, and sometimes, you know, what, um, what they're working on really is something else completely another part of their lives or you know or someone else's life or someone else's story
0: yeah well as as we know now uh charles schultz the writer of the peanuts cartoon for 40 years uh we now know he suffered from depression his entire life Mm -hmm. uh but but either than the occasional sketch of lucy you know charging five cents for psychiatric sessions Mm -hmm. um most of his comics were about snoopy and uh and that kind of stuff yeah and you uh, can
1: imagine that maybe doing that was something that that for him maybe kept him in a good place i have no idea if that was something that you know kept him from the depths of depression who knows
0: Well, uh, thank you, Kelly. That's been Kelly Strawn uh, from Workman Arts. And uh, thank you so much, uh, Catherine, uh, for for joining us. Uh, It's been Catherine McClellan, uh, and her documentary um, is The Song and the Sorrow, and uh, it debuts uh, the opening of the Rendezvous with Madness Film Festival uh, running from October 10th to October 21st. Uh, So thank you for listening. Um, If you happen to be in Toronto or in the GTA, um say there's lots of stuff going on here for uh for the next 11 12 days so um you know plenty of opportunities
1: they can go to workmanarts.com to get their tickets to see song and sorrow there you go
0: (laughs) thank you for that kelly Uh, and thank you all uh the listeners for joining this has been uh the cam h uh
2: podcast